Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, uh, you'll want to turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. It's also printed for you uh, in your bulletin there. Welcome again to Trinity Grace. So glad you're here this morning. If I haven't yet had a chance to meet you, my name is Michael, and I'm the pastor here at Trinity Grace. And as many of you will know, we're in a series on the life of Peter. And this series is going to take us up to Easter Sunday, and our hope is that as we put ourselves in Peter's shoes every week, we'll get a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus in the Christian life. Our hope is also that we'll get a chance to see how Jesus relates to people like Peter and to people like me and you. People who oftentimes get it and who at other times don't get it at all. Our passage this morning that we're about to read happens just after Jesus and his disciples have had their final meal with Jesus. Jesus just instituted the Lord's Supper, and he spends the evening teaching and encouraging his disciples about what life is going to look like once he leaves them in the next few days. In less than 24 hours, Jesus is going to be dead. He's going to be crucified on a Roman cross, and Jesus knows that this is not at all what his disciples expected. He knows that this is going to shock his disciples. They're not going to know how to make sense of this, so he turns to them with a prediction of what's about to happen in their hearts and in their lives as they witness his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. And in talking to his disciples, Jesus highlights their frailty. He highlights their frailty. He shows them who they really are in a sense. Weak and oftentimes faithless people. A group that will be offended by what they see happening to their leader. And in this passage, we also get a taste of our own frailty. Because as we place ourselves in Peter's shoes, we can see ourselves in him in a lot of ways. We think we're strong, but Jesus comes and he tells us that we're actually weak. And as we come to understand who we really are, it's strangely comforting. To see what I mean, let's read Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 31. Then Jesus said to his disciples, You'll all fall away because of me this night, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and cares for us. Let me pray for us before we consider it together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for passages like this that point out our weakness and our frailty, our utter dependence on you. And we pray this morning that this passage would lead us to deeper dependence on the one who loves us and has given his life for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder how many of you are watching March Madness right now. Uh, If you like sports, it's an exciting time of year this next few weeks. Every March, there are a number of storylines that emerge from the NCAA tournament. There's always upsets. There's lots of close games. Brackets, yours truly, have already been busted uh, at this point in the tournament. In fact, this past Friday, uh, a number one seed uh, lost to a number 16 seed. This has never happened in the history uh, of the NCAA tournament when the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, beat the University of Virginia, who I picked to win the whole thing. 
Um, there's always good storylines uh, when it comes to March Madness. In fact, a few years ago, there was an amazing chance for a team to make history. Back in 2015, Kentucky went undefeated for the entire regular season, and they also won their first few games of the NCAA tournament, and this made them 36-0, and 36 wins, zero losses at the time. And it was an amazing run. And during the Sweet 16 of that year, Kentucky played West Virginia. And lots of people thought that maybe West Virginia had the ability to pull off the upset against Kentucky. And during that magical season, if you were a team that was playing Kentucky, it was in your best interest to stay quiet, to kind of keep your head down, to not make much noise, and to try to get your job done. But there was one West Virginia player that missed that memo in 2015. Daxter Miles Jr., a freshman who played for West Virginia, he averaged seven points per game at that season, and the day before his team was scheduled to play the best team in the country, likely the best team in history, he was interviewed about his team's chances, and this is what he said. He said, I salute them for getting to 36-0, and but tomorrow they're going to be 36-1. and Well, if you watch that game, you would have known that Kentucky likely used Miles' words to get pumped up for that game because they went out and they beat West Virginia by 39 points. And on top of that, Daxter Miles Jr. didn't score a single point in the entire game. And after the game, the press went looking for Miles for an interview, and they went back in the locker room, and Daxter Miles Jr. literally hid in the bathroom to escape the questions from the press. And it's kind of comical, a classic case of overestimation, an instance where pride and self-reliance got the best of someone. And it's similar to what we see Peter doing in our passage this morning. In our passage, Jesus, who knows his disciples better than they know themselves, makes a prediction that they're about to all fall away within the next 24 hours. He predicts that they'll all desert him because of what he'll experience at the hands of the religious leaders. It's going to be too much for their hearts and their minds to take in, and they're going to turn their back on Christ. And upon hearing this prediction from Jesus, Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, pushes back and tells Jesus that he's never going to fall away. It's a classic case of Peter overestimating himself. An instance where pride and self-reliance get the best of Peter. In this instance, Peter thinks he's better than he really is. He doesn't consider his frailty. He doesn't think it's possible for him to fail. But we'll see this morning that we can't be too hard on Peter. Because if we're honest with ourselves and one another, we'd have to admit that we've been there before, haven't we? We've all looked at areas of our life and we've overestimated our strength. We've looked at areas of our life and we've forgotten our frailty. We've forgotten our proneness to leave Jesus. And when that happens, a hard fall isn't normally very far away. It's the Proverbs that says pride comes before the fall. Later on in his life, Peter actually writes a letter. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It seems that through the course of following Jesus, Peter had learned a valuable lesson that had the potential to bring freedom and life. And it's got the potential to bring freedom and life to us as well if we learn it too. So this morning, we're going to ask God to teach us this lesson that he taught Peter. 
We're going to look at this passage under three headings. First, we'll see Christ's estimation of Peter. Then we'll look at Peter's estimation of himself. And then we'll spend a few minutes talking about filling the gap that's left between Christ's estimation and Peter's estimation. Okay? First, let's spend a few minutes considering Christ's estimation of Peter. We see Christ's estimation of Peter stand out in both verses 31 and 34 of our passage. Like we mentioned, Jesus had just finished eating his last meal with his disciples. He's been encouraging them to love one another and to serve one another. And now Jesus moves out into the night uh, on his way to his betrayal. In less than a few hours, Jesus will be handed over to the religious leaders. He'll be tried and he'll be crucified. And remember, Jesus has been predicting this arrest, this trial, and this crucifixion time and time again throughout the Gospels. Yet each time he predicts it, his disciples don't seem to understand. It goes in one ear and out the other. And knowing that they're about to experience this, knowing that they're about to experience devastation, knowing that their expectations are about to crumble and to send their hearts reeling, Jesus makes a prediction in verse 31. He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. Now, the you all in this verse is emphatic in the original language. It's Jesus' closest followers that are going to fall away. It's not the Pharisees. It's not casual observers that are going to fall away. It's Christ's closest friends, those who have followed him for three years nonstop, night and day. These are going to be the ones that fall away from Jesus, that desert him, that turn their back on him. Jesus foresees his shaming arrest and trial and death to be so brutalizing to these disciples' sensibilities that they'll all lose faith and flee away. They'll desert him. These disciples aren't ready for what they're about to see. It's unlike anything they've experienced up to this point. I like how one commentator put it when he said this, Till now, the disciples had known mainly glory. They'd known miracles and powerful teaching in Jesus' presence. He had at times, of course, seemed too good to be true. But before the night's over, they will all feel that he was indeed too good to be true. Look, the shameful humiliation of Christ is going to crush the disciples' spirits. To ruin their dreams and hopes. It's not going to make sense to them. And Jesus comes and he uses a prophecy from Zechariah 13 in this passage. He says that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus knew himself to be the shepherd that Zechariah speaks of here. He would be struck because of God's love. And because he's struck, his sheep are not going to be able to handle what they see. And they're going to scatter away. They're going to turn their back on Jesus. And Jesus knows his disciples. He knows they're made of dust. He knows what's inside their hearts. He looks at what could be rightfully described as the church itself at this point in time. And he predicts the complete collapse of the church in verse 31. It's all going to crumble. It's all going to fall apart. But Jesus' estimation of the disciples' weakness and frailty doesn't stop in verse 31. He goes on. We see him pick back up with his honest assessment of Peter in verse 34. After Peter doubles down on his commitment and his strength, Jesus zeroes in on Peter's frailty by telling him that he's not just going to fall away passively like the rest of the disciples. No, he is going to actively deny Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. 
three times before the cock crows. And this phrase, just as an interesting tidbit, cock crow is likely referring to a night watch that was known to Roman soldiers as the crow of the cocks, which happened sometime between midnight and 3 a.m. when the rooster normally gave its first call. So it's only going to take Peter a matter of a few hours to turn his back on Jesus after saying that he'd never do it. Jesus knows Peter and he predicts Peter's fall will be deep. It's going to be deep where he completely turns his back on Jesus. It's going to be swift. It's going to happen in just a few hours and it's going to be repeated. Would have been easy to forgive maybe a slip up, but he does it three times. In this passage, Jesus knows what's inside of Peter's heart. He knows Peter's frailty. He knows that Peter is not exceptional. He knows that Peter is prone to struggle and to failure. And this doesn't shock Jesus. It doesn't throw Jesus into despair that Peter's going to deny him, that Peter is weak and frail. And while it's not necessarily the best news, it's strangely comforting. It's comforting to know that Jesus is never surprised by your frailty. He's not surprised by your struggles. Our sin and our failure do not shock Jesus. It's strangely comforting because it means that you can be honest with Jesus. We don't have to to keep up appearances. You don't have to impress But more often than not, that's the exact mentality we bring to the table when we try to follow Jesus, when we come to church. It's about what we can offer. It's about our strengths. It's about how hard we work. We overestimate ourselves thinking that that's what God wants. He needs good soldiers. He needs strong people. But if you look through the Bible, what you see is that God constantly and continually uses not the strong, but the weak. He uses not the exceptional, but failures. Think about it for a minute. Look at Abraham, the father of the Judeo-Christian faith. A man who continually sold out his wife in order to save his own neck. Look at Noah. The only righteous man on earth at one point built an ark, got in it with his family. But a man who after he gets off the ark, one of the first things he does is get blackout drunk, plastered. Look at Moses, the leader of God's people, a man who is in charge of an entire nation, taking them to the promised land, but one whose entire life is characterized much of the time by fear and people pleasing. Man, it's a good thing we have David, right? David, the one who slept with another man's wife and had her husband murdered. Throughout the Bible, we see that God uses the weak. He uses the frail. He uses the fearful. He uses those who have blown it. This means that we can stop pretending to be someone that we're not. Jesus isn't looking for a great resume. He knows you. He knows your instability and your frailty and your fear. It doesn't surprise him. It doesn't come as a shock to him. And it's strangely comforting, as we'll see in a minute, because it's actually the beginning of hope for us. If we're going to experience Jesus' forgiveness and healing in our lives, then we've got to have an honest self-assessment. We need to be spiritually self-aware. And what we see from our passage is that Peter lacked this self-awareness. Let's turn and take a look at Peter's estimation of himself for just a few minutes. 
We see Peter's estimation of himself stand out in verse 33 and 35 of our passage. Jesus makes his predictions of what's to come. And Peter answers back, even though Jesus isn't looking for an answer. Jesus is just making a statement. But Peter feels the need to defend himself. And in verse 33, he says, though they all fall away because of you, I'm never going to fall away. Notice how quickly Peter throws his friends under the bus here. I mean, Peter thought that he, uh, that Jesus had vastly underestimated the dedication of at least one of the disciples, okay? Um, He's stronger than the rest is what he thinks. And Peter reminds Jesus that he's his right-hand man. He's the one who's always by him. These others, they might fall away. They're weak, you know, they're frail, but not me. I'm exceptional. I'll make it through the night. In a sense, Peter thinks Jesus needs a higher view of human nature. And especially a higher view of a deeply committed disciple like him. I mean, what is Jesus thinking here? Giving Peter no credit. Peter felt like he was exceptional when it came to following Jesus. I like how Matthew Henry touches on the danger of exceptionalism when he says this. It argues a great deal of self-conceit and self-confidence to think ourselves safe from the temptations are free from the corruptions that are common to men. We're all prone to failure, just like the next person. And Peter wrongly assessed his spiritual strength in this passage and what it leads to is a spiritual fall that would have ruined Peter's life if it wasn't for the grace of Jesus. So we see Peter push back once in verse 33, and then he doubles down after hearing Jesus' prediction about him personally. He pushes back one last time, insisting that he's exceptional. In verse 35, he says, even if I've got to die with you, I won't deny you. We see in our passage that Peter's self-reliance is the beginning of his downfall. It's Peter's refusal to accept his frailty that leads to condescending attitude towards other disciples. It leads to his overinflated sense of pride. It leads to him even contradicting what Jesus is saying here straight to his face. And if we don't acknowledge the fact that we're weak, that we're prone to wonder, that we're frail just like Peter, then it leads us to the same places that it led him. We've got to know ourselves property, properly. Spiritual self-awareness is so important. Look, folks are even recognizing this need for proper self-awareness more and more in everyday life, in secular life. There have been lots of studies done recently um, that show self-awareness is actually the best indicator of success in relationships, in business, in parenting. In other words, it's not your IQ that matters so much. It's not your formal education. It's not all your experience that's most important in life. It's your emotional intelligence or what folks call self-awareness. Are you aware of who you are? Do you know yourself? And in this passage, Jesus shows us that Peter lacks self-awareness. He doesn't know himself. It's almost painful to see from the outside looking in, isn't it? We hate the idea of not being self-aware, of being laughed at and not known, knowing about it. But we all lack self-awareness in big ways when it comes to our ability to sin, when it comes to our propensity to turn away from Jesus. Like Peter, we believe that we can do it on our own. We don't pay enough attention to our frailty. We think we're exceptional. Or if we don't think that, we believe that our frailty is something that we've got to fix. 
We work hard to be strong. We're surprised when we fail. But I wonder if you've ever considered that becoming more self-aware of your potential to sin and of your frailty and of your weakness could actually be the thing that brings freedom and growth to your life. It's what we'll see by the end of Peter's life. Peter rises from a massive failure that we'll talk about next week, and he's strengthened to move out in ways that would not have been possible otherwise. He's awakened to who he really is, and it brings power to his life and to his ministry and to his relationship with Jesus. He learns something here that he could learn no other way, and it blesses the church. So up to this point, what we've seen is two different assessments, okay? We've seen Jesus' assessment of Peter, and we've seen Peter's assessment of himself, and there's a huge gap between these two assessments, And the question for us this morning is, how does that gap get filled? How does that gap get filled between Jesus' assessment of us and our assessment of ourselves? When it comes to filling that gap we all experience, you've got one of two options. You can either try harder to close the gap with your dedication and with your obedience, or you can close the gap by receiving the grace that Jesus offers and live out of the forgiveness that you've received. We see this grace and forgiveness on offer in verse 32. If verse 32 weren't in this passage, it would be almost hopeless. But it's a shimmer of gospel hope where Jesus promises right in the middle of Peter denying him in a sense. He says, after I am raised up, I'm going to go before you to Galilee and I'm going to meet you there. In the midst of his honest assessment and prediction of Peter's failure, Jesus tells Peter that he's going to lead him again. Even though you're going to fall, I'm going to be on the other end to pick you up. Jesus promises Peter that he's not finished with him. Jesus promises not just to rise from the dead, but to take Peter back into his arms and to lead him as a friend and a follower. Jesus is telling his disciples that their failure will not be the end of the story. He's telling them that he's going to meet them once again in Galilee once he's been raised from the dead. Jesus is extending forgiveness here even after knowing that his disciples are going to turn their back on him. And the question becomes for Peter and for you and me this morning, in light of this forgiveness offered, will we continue to live out of our devotion or will we learn to live out of our forgiveness? In other words, will you rely on your devotion to Jesus to close that gap? Or will you rely on the forgiveness that Jesus offers to close that gap for you? The first option is to live out of your devotion. Like Peter, you can rely on yourself to get the job done. To remain faithful to Jesus. You can make promises. I might have failed yesterday, but I promise I'm not going to do that again. That temptation's never going to trip me up again. I'm never going to say those words that came out of my mouth again. You can try to work harder. You can get stronger so that you can fulfill your commitments to Jesus. And if this is your approach to the Christian life, to relating to Jesus, then what's likely going to happen in my own personal experience is that you're going to grow grow anxious because you haven't done enough. You're going to grow guilty when you experience failure. Failure will be devastating for you. But on the other hand, if you actually succeed, you'll be so puffed up with pride that you'll condescend to others in ways that you never imagined that you would. You'll expect too much from others. You'll be unkind and unforgiving 
you'll be a perfectionist. And if you stop and think about it, you need to be a perfectionist if this is the way you relate to Jesus. Because if you lived based on your dedication, you're basically trying to live in such a way that says, I don't need a savior. You're you're trying to live a life that excludes Jesus in a lot of ways. And it's exactly what we see Peter do here in this passage. Instead of begging for Jesus's grace and forgiveness preemptively, what we see is he thinks that he's strong enough to make it without Jesus's help. The first thing he should have done when he heard this prediction was, Jesus, help me. I'm not going to be able to make it. But what we find is that when we think we're strong, when we overestimate our abilities to follow Jesus, it's then that we're most prone to deep failure. The other option for us, we can either live out of our devotion or we can live out of our frailty. We can embrace our weakness. We, we can realize who we really are and to live out of the forgiveness that Jesus preemptively offers. And it's counterintuitive, but when we're aware of our weakness, we actually have the possibility of growing strong. Because when you're weak, you look for someone or something who is strong to help you. If we would live in reality, if we would know who we truly are, confessing that we're more more frail than we would like, admitting that we feel powerless when it comes to healing certain relationships or avoiding certain temptations or getting over the deep sadness that we experience on a daily basis. If we were willing to admit our weakness in those areas and our frailty, our propensity to turn our back on Jesus, it's then that we would be ready to find the strength that Jesus offers. Too often we place our faith in our faith. We place our faith in our devotion. We rely on our devotion, but God wants us to completely rely on Christ, not ourselves. It's exactly what Alcoholics Anonymous is tapping into with their 12-step program, which actually has Christian origins. The first step of AA is to admit that you're powerless and that your life has become unmanageable. And then the second step is that you come to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. Sanity, life in reality. Look, only when we confess our personal bankruptcy is there any hope for recovery. It's what Peter refuses to do in this passage, and it keeps him from the strength that Jesus wants him to experience. And I wonder this morning, and it's the question that you've got to answer, are you living out of your devotion or are you living out of your weakness? Think about how much freedom you would experience if you'd live out of your weakness. If you'd be self-aware. If you'd embrace your frailty, if you would live out of the forgiveness that Jesus offers, think how attractive your life would be. You could offer people hope, not because of how strong you are, which actually turns people away, but out of your weakness and dependence on Jesus, which draws people in. Pointing them to the one who's strong in the midst of your weakness. And the only way we'll have the power to live a life of weakness is if we believe that Jesus was strong. It's possible to admit your failures only if you believe that Jesus never fails you and that he makes up for your failures. Peter completely missed it in this passage. He thought it was all about his commitment to Jesus and we can resonate with him. We often live that way too, thinking that we need to be strong, but we're reminded from this passage that it's not about our commitment to Jesus, but about his commitment to us. It's not about our strength 
It's about his strength. And believing that more fully has the power to set you free. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for the way that you allow us to be weak. In fact, you expect it. It's why you came. And we confess that we oftentimes try to be strong. And it leads to many different areas in our life that we would rather not think about, that we would rather not experience any longer. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to have a proper estimation of who we are. And that that estimation would drive us to you uh, and to your forgiveness and to your strength that you offer to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.